If this is indeed Russia failing, as the Biden administration now says, I would hate to see what Russia winning looks like. The lead starts right now. No signs of Putin relenting as a CNN team is forced to take cover in Ukraine, witnessing heavy bombardment way too up close. Plus, the standoff in Mariupol as Ukrainians shelter in a steel plant. I'm going to speak with the CEO of the company that owns that plant. Also ahead, a CNN exclusive, more than 2,000 texts revealing what Trump's inner circle and allies we're really saying behind the scenes about the big election lie and the deadly Capitol riot on January 6th. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead and the intensifying Russian assault on targets full of innocent Ukrainian civilians. Ukrainian officials say Russian forces struck five train stations in central and western Ukraine, all within the span of an hour earlier today. This is the aftermath of one of those strikes. Thick billowing black smoke filling the air in western Ukraine, not far from Lviv, in the town of Krasne, where an electrical substation near the train station was also hit, we're told. The country's railway company says casualties have been reported, although we do not know as of now exactly how many people were killed or injured. Ukraine's train system has, of course, been vital in the country's war effort, transporting millions of innocent civilians to safety and bringing in essential life-saving supplies. The situation is also further deteriorating in Mariupol in the south, where one Ukrainian official says Russian forces are continuously attacking a steel plant where hundreds of civilians are sheltering. This has been described as the last stand for the Ukrainian soldiers on the ground in Mariupol. And in Kyiv, a show of solidarity from the United States, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin traveling by rail to the Ukrainian capital to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky and other key Ukrainian leaders. After that meeting, Austin and Blinken traveled to Poland, where the defense secretary shared this about the United States' goals in this war. We want to see Russia uh, uh, weakened uh, to the degree that it can't uh, do the kinds of things that uh, it has done uh, in, in invading Ukraine. So it has already lost a lot of military capability uh, and a lot of, uh, a lot of its troops, quite frankly. And uh, we want to see them not have the capability to very quickly reproduce that capability. We're going to have much more on that diplomatic visit and the new military aid the U.S. is sending to Ukraine ahead on the lead. But we're going to start now with CNN's Scott McLean, who visited one of the train stations that was attacked by Russia today. We took a train into, uh, into Kyiv uh, from southwestern Poland. So didn't see a lot except looking out the train windows uh, on our way in. And in Kyiv itself, we went right to the presidential palace. Just hours after the U.S. secretaries of state and defense left Ukraine by rail, air raid sirens sounded in western Ukraine. The head of Ukrainian railways says that within one hour, rail infrastructure in five places was hit by Russian strikes. The farthest west was near the town of Krasne. Natalia Rudak was working in this building next to the tracks when she heard the explosions. From this side, air defense shot down a missile, then silence. The second explosion was on that side. We've seen black smoke. How loud was it? Very loud. Windows rang and we panicked. We were afraid. The governor's office released this video showing fire and heavy smoke near the tracks. They say an electrical substation was hit, though on the ground we weren't allowed to get close. 
In several places scattered throughout this area, police and military are finding what they say are remnants of a Russian rocket. This is one of them, a twisted pile of melted, charred metal. They're finding these all over the place. What they have not found, though, is a large crater, and so they think that this one was shot down. In the Venezia region, the governor there said that two separate strikes killed five and injured 18. Ukraine's military command said in an online post that Russia is targeting vital railway supply routes in order to disrupt arms shipments from Ukraine's partner states. Just across the border, Russia reported that a fire broke out in an oil storage facility on Russian soil. Russian officials say the cause of the fire is unclear, but it comes not long after the Kremlin accused Ukraine of striking another Russian oil depot in the city of Belgorod. Now, since the war began, virtually every foreign delegation visiting Kyiv has taken the train. Ukrainian Railways is constantly adjusting the routes to avoid damaged tracks and other hazards. And while we don't know the exact route that Blinken and Austin took uh, earlier today, there is a good chance they, that they would have traveled through that same stretch of tracks that we were at today um, just hours before they were targeted by Russian missiles. Jake? Scott McLean and Lviv for us. Thank you so much. Ukraine's rescue workers face increasing danger as they work on the front line of Putin's war. Russian forces are using the same tactics that terrorists use, attacking the same target twice in an effort to also kill those who rush to save and help survivors. CNN's Clarissa Ward was traveling with a paramedic team in Kharkiv, Ukraine, working to help the injured as Russian forces begin shelling nearby buildings. It's the beginning of a 24-hour shift for paramedics Alexandra Rudkovskaya and Vladimir Venzel. They prepare their ambulance for the carnage that Kharkiv residents confront every day. We have two tourniquets, Vladimir says. Alexandra's mother stops by the dispatch center to give her daughter a hug. This is one of the most dangerous jobs. Every moment together is precious. A loud stream of boom signals the day's work is beginning. That's incoming now, this ambulance worker tells us. Alexandra and Vladimir answer the call. Temperatura, she says, the code used when someone has been wounded by shelling. Their flak jackets on, they're ready to roll out. So they've said that they've got reports one person at least has been injured in the shelling and they're hearing some rockets as well, so we're going to see what's going on. The shells hit a residential apartment building. The paramedics need to act fast. Russian forces are increasingly hitting the same target twice. It's called a double tap. A horrifying strategy to take out rescue workers as they respond. As we see for ourselves. Get in, Vladimir shouts. Faster, faster, faster. We take cover under the stairwell. Alexandra is trying to find the wounded person but there's no signal. At that moment, another barrage goes off. We brace for the impact.
Is everybody okay? Alexandra asks. Our team member, Maria Avdeva, has cut up her hands on broken glass. Vladimir treats her injuries, as Alexandra calls the dispatch again to find where the wounded are. We've got no connection, we're sitting in the entrance, she says, and they're shelling the shit out of us. The connection keeps dropping. Finally, she gets through to the person who called for the ambulance. Tell me your damn house number, she says. I repeat, 12G. I've told you a thousand times, he replies. The man is dying. We decide to try to make a run for it. One, two, three, let's go. Go. Come on, Maria. Maria, come on. Come on, Maria. Come on. Go, go. In the car. In the car. Right over. We were just in an apartment building. Uh, they were looking for an injured man. A bunch of rounds came in and hit the next door building, so now we are getting out as fast as we can. While we run out, Vladimir and Alexandra run back in. We find them treating the injured man on the side of the road. Their back window has been blown out by the blasts. He has shrapnel injuries and head trauma. Once they've stabilized him, they rush him to the hospital. Vladimir asks about his pain. The man has been deafened by the blast. Arriving at the hospital, they've done their part. It's up to others now to save him. I have to say, I think you guys are like the bravest people I have ever met. Back at base, we ask them why they continue to do this work. With all the danger it entails. It's normal. This is our work. Of course it's scary, like for everyone, Alexandra says. Today you were with us in the hottest place, in the oven, but we're still alive, thank God. You feel it's your duty or obligation, Vladimir tells us, to help the people who are still here. And what do your parents say? What does your family say? Aren't they wanting you to stop this work? <laughs> no comments. No comments. It's very difficult. Uh, they must be scared. Uh, yes, yes. Proud, but scared. Uh, call all day, all night. What means? We saw your mother. Yes. She's worried to the point of hysteria, Alexandra tells us. She says you need to leave. You need to go to some safe place. Why are you doing this? I have only one child. Stop it. And what do you say? I have to do it, she says simply. And with that, they go back to cleaning their ambulance. Their shift only halfway through. Jake, we spoke to the head of emergency services here in Kharkiv. He told us that out of 250 ambulances, 50 of them 
50 of them have already been taken out of commission because they've been hit by shrapnel. Uh, and they're no longer available to drive. They also desperately need more equipment. You may have noticed they were not wearing helmets. There is one helmet for each vehicle and three workers in each vehicle. And they're also not using a radio system. As you saw, they're reliant on cell phones. And as we experience, the minute those shells start raining down, the cell phone service disappears and becomes spotty for quite some time afterwards. So this is really challenging work that they're doing. The only other thing I wanted to add, because I was just so struck by it, is their ages. Sasha is just 23 years old. Vladimir Jake is just 25. And Sasha and Vladimir are not the only incredibly brave people in that piece. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for your reporting, you and your crew. We appreciate it. Next, to southern Ukraine and that standoff at the Mariupol steel plant. How long can Ukrainian civilians hold out? I'm going to talk to the CEO of the company that owns that plant. Plus, the Republican congressional trip today to the U.S. border with Mexico, led by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, trying to deflect questions about audio recordings that reveal quite contradictory statements he made about Donald Trump. Stay with us. And we are back with our world lead, a new video that reportedly shows the worsening conditions inside a steel plant in Mariupol in southern Ukraine, where hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are sheltering. The Azov Regiment shared this video to social media. It features some of the women and children who've been stuck in a basement for eight weeks, hiding from the constant Russian bombardment. Just listen to the desperate pleas from some of the civilians. My city is completely destroyed. There is not a single place that's intact. Everything is bombed out. The children here are crying all the time. They want to play. They want to live. We can't even go outside. We have children who haven't been outside, haven't even seen daylight for weeks. Children not going outside. We have maximum a week's worth of water, food, too. A week, in a week's time, I don't know where, what, what will happen to us. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is live in southern Ukraine in the town of Kroveri. Uh, Nick, how does this battle for Mariupol fit into the larger campaign of the Russians to take control of the south of, the, of Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think for the whole south of this area, it shows quite how brutal Russia is prepared to get, frankly, destroying anything that remains of Mariupol. And despite Russian President Vladimir Putin saying that really a fly shouldn't be allowed in or out of that steel plant, there were suggestions of a humanitarian corridor today that were roundly and justifiably dismissed, frankly, by Ukraine because they simply couldn't trust the Russians to let people out safely. But in the event that Russia feels it can move resources away from Mariupol, which it probably does feel is the case now it frees up troops to start moving further west remember last week russia announced a lofty goal that the second phase of its operation would be to try and push across the black sea coast through mikolaev through odessa even to moldova part of the european union on ukraine's west to a breakaway region that russia has uh, assisted there as well that was a lofty goal frankly almost impossible something they've been trying to do for the past two months but what we've been seeing here jake near krivirich important because it's 
it's President uh, Vladimir Zelensky's hometown and an industrial hub is a build-up of Russian forces to the south of where I'm standing. In fact, today we drove down uh, to observe that in fact there may be 30, 40 kilometres to the south of where I'm standing here, pushing up, increasing their numbers. Those fleeing Russian-held areas along the west side of the Dnieper River here near Kherson, the first Russian city to fall, uh, sorry, Ukrainian city to fall to the Russians, are suggesting that there are increasing numbers of Russian troops here. The thought is perhaps they might try and move in on this industrial hub or even go further west towards Zaporozhye, towards the eastern offensive that so many are talking about here too. Important though, in the next 48 hours, that city of Kherson will hold what many are calling a sham referendum, essentially a bid to suggest they want to, as a population, become part of Russia. Many fears, though, that this push we're seeing of Russian forces is about advancing their control round there and also up towards where I'm standing here, too. A surprise development, frankly. I think few were expecting, Jake. You know, the Russians love these illusions of democracy after they've killed a bunch of people. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss, Yuri Ryzhenkov. He's the CEO of MedInvest. That's the company that owns the Azovstal steel plant. Yuri, I, I guess I want to start by wondering what goes through your mind when you see this new video of civilians sheltering inside your plant. How, how hard is it to watch knowing that they are still facing constant Russian attacks? Well, it's, it's an absolute humanitarian catastrophe there. Um, it's not only watching this video, but we also literally on a daily basis we're uh, meeting our people who come out of Mariupol, come out of Azovstal. We're welcoming them in, in Zaporozhye. We have the humanitarian rehabilitation center there with the psychologist and so on. It's very difficult to hear what those people are saying. And and, and really, we, we're just, just, just appalled at what the Russians are doing. We heard women in that video say that they only have enough food and water to last for a few more days. Is there any way to get supplies into the plant right now or, or the Russians just won't let it? Well, uh, we, we stocked the, the shelters uh, before the war. We stocked with food and, and uh, water, which we thought was enough for, for two or three weeks. But now we, we're well over a month. So I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm surprised they still have food and water there in the shelters. And we couldn't get uh, any help into Mariupol because the Russians did not allow us to, to do this humanitarian convoys into the city. President Zelensky told me uh, when I interviewed him about a week and a half ago that they've been Ukrainians have been trying for weeks to get evacuation corridors out of Mariupol. Russia claimed it, it agreed to a humanitarian evacuation corridor today to get civilians out of the plant. Ukrainian officials say that's not true. What have you heard? Has anybody been able to leave the plant today safely? Well, I don't know if anyone left today safely, but I can confirm that for the last uh, over a month, We've been trying together with the local authorities to, to provide this humanitarian convoys. So, uh, we used our buses to, to get some food and, and water into the, uh, into the city and try to get the people out. But every time when the Russians confirmed that there is a uh, corridor, as they call it, the Green Corridor, uh, they would continue shooting. Uh, so uh, the only people that get out of the city, they do it at their own risk, on their own uh, cars or with the volunteers or even on food. So that's that's what's happening there. Do you know how many people remain stuck inside the plant and how many of them are civilians? Well, uh, we don't know anything about the military, but for the civilians, as far as we know, about 1,000 civilians uh, still uh, at the shelters at the plant. 
So your company had more than 10,000 workers at the uh, Azovstal plant before the war broke out, I'm told. As of last week, uh, you say you'd heard from fewer than half of them about their whereabouts. Do you know where the rest of your workers are? That's more than 5,000 people. Could, could they be stuck inside? Uh, well, they could. Be, the, the shelters, they have enough space for about 4,000 people, uh, which, which is uh, like one, one and a half shift at, at the mill. Uh, so uh, I don't think all of them can be stuck, but obviously we do have some of our, uh, some of our employees still stuck at the plant. The rest of them are scattered around the city, probably in the basements or in the other bomb shelters which are in the city. Yuri Rozhenkov, thank you so much. Uh, please stay in touch. If there's anything we can do to help um, the people in your shelter, in your, in your steel plant, let us know. Coming up next, only here on CNN, see some of the 2,000 text messages that reveal what Trump allies were saying in private about the 2020 election and about the January 6th riot versus what they were saying publicly. Stay with us. Breaking news in our politics lead, CNN has exclusively obtained more than 2,000 text messages sent and received by then-Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows including exchanges with Trump family members such as Ivanka and Don Jr. and more than 40 current and former Republican officials from Election Day 2020 until President Biden's inauguration in January 2021. Let's get right to CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel, one of the team that broke this incredible story. And Jamie, some of these messages have never uh, been seen before. Uh, give us a sense of the scope of what you and, and, your, and your fellow reporters have obtained. So most of them have never been seen before. We obtained all 2,319 text messages that Mark Meadows voluntarily turned over to the committee. The texts provide the most revealing picture yet about what was going on behind the scenes. From Trump family members, as you mentioned, Ivanka Trump, to campaign officials like Jason Miller, to Republican members of Congress, to activists, to people like Sidney Powell, who are are fighting the case. Uh, It's also interesting because, let's just go through some of the 40 members, more than 40 members of Congress. You have Ted Cruz, you have Mo Brooks, you have Jim Jordan, and you have Marjorie Taylor Greene. So you really see a spectrum, and this is from Election Day to January 20th. Big picture, 30,000 feet, what do you see? This is not normal. Uh, Mark Meadows is not acting as a White House chief of staff. He's acting as a campaign manager. Uh, He is never pushing back on Donald Trump from what we've seen in these Mm -hmm. logs about January 6th. One of the most alarming things that we've heard about the plans back then, uh, Michael Flynn, the former general, uh, and others were talking about declaring martial law, uh, seizing control of of voting stations in various battleground states. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, she testified on Friday. uh, She was asked if she remembered invoking or advocating for Trump to invoke martial law Uh, She said she didn't remember. Uh, Anything in the text about that? So let's prompt her memory. Three texts. Interesting. January 6th, she's alarmed. She is one of the first members of Congress, according to these texts, to actually reach out to Meadows. And she says, quote, Mark, I was just told there is an active shooter on the first floor of the Capitol. Please tell the president to calm people. This isn't the way to solve anything. Now, She is one of Trump's most ardent supporters, and she's saying, stop it. January 7th, her tone changes, 
And the next day, she's not so scared, and she's apologetic. And she texts Meadows, and she says, quote, I'm sorry nothing worked. That's about stopping the process. Stopping the counting of the... Stopping the counting. Of the vote of the American people. She was sorry they couldn't get that done. On January 17th, this is the critical text. She is still looking for a way to keep Trump in power. Quote, in our private chat with only members, several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to call for martial. She doesn't know how to spell it. Law. I don't know on those things. I just wanted you to tell him they stole this election. We all know they will destroy our country next. Please tell him to declassify as much as possible so we can go after Biden and anything else. Three days before the inauguration, she is trying to encourage the White House to invoke martial law. It's terrifying. Uh, You also have messages coming into Meadows from people like Donald Trump Jr. Right. So some of these things we've seen, but one of the starkest things is that on January 6th, all of his staunchest allies are reaching out to Meadows saying, please get the president to stop. And we know he doesn't. Mick Mulvaney, former acting chief of staff, Mark, he needs to stop this. Can I do anything to help? Representative William Timmons, the president needs to stop this. ASAP, Reince Priebus, former chief of staff, all capital letters, tell them to go home, three exclamation points. And now we get to his son, Donald Trump Jr. He's got to condemn this. You can read it, ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Meadows says, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. And then this is brand new. Donald Trump Jr. says, this is one you go to the mattresses on. They will try to F his entire legacy on this if it gets worse. So all of these allies who subsequently have acted as though this is not a big deal or this was Antifa or everybody's making too big a deal of it, all of them behind the scenes saying not only that they know it's a big deal, but they all believe President Trump could stop it. In real time, in black and white, and that goes to people like Jared Kushner, who on December 5th sends a text message to Meadows with a link to a news article that says, video from Georgia does not show suitcases filled with ballots pulled from under the table. He gets that this isn't real, and he's telling uh, Meadows that. Then on January 13th, Jason Miller, campaign spokesman, says in a group text to Meadows and Kushner, quote, I tried to walk the president through this earlier, but he won't have any of it. Here's the interesting part. Two-thirds of the MAGA base wants us to move on. They, they all knew, Jake, to your point, but uh, they, they either weren't telling Trump, but they certainly were not telling the public and their followers. Just for context, Meadows replies, they tend to be very short. Uh, as far as the logs are concerned, sometimes it looks as if he does not reply at all. We don't know if that's because things were deleted or withheld for privilege. It's very disturbing, but amazing reporting. Jamie Gengel, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The problem goes well beyond those text messages, of course. Almost two years later, the big election lie is still very much alive. How 2020 conspiracy theories have flooded some campaigns that are thriving today in 2022. That's next. Back in our politics lead across the country, Republican candidates are campaigning on former President Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. In Michigan, the state Republican Party just formally endorsed two candidates 
known for spreading misinformation about the 2020 election, including the woman who, if elected, would supervise elections in the state. And as CNN Sarah Murray reports for us now, Michigan is sadly far from alone. The presidential election was rigged and stolen. And the big lie is still the big motivator for many Republican voters. We're insurrectionists, we're traitors, big lie proponents for asking questions. The 2022 Michigan State Convention will come to order. In Michigan, Republicans this weekend overwhelmingly endorsed Christina Caramo, who spread conspiracies about the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection, to be their nominee for Secretary of State, the state's top election official. Thank you. Walloping other candidates with election experience, Karamo is on track to take on the Democratic incumbent this fall. Guess what, Jocelyn Benson? I am your worst nightmare. In the run-up to the midterms, national Republicans say they're focused on the economy, inflation, and crime. But in Republican primaries, the magic words are Donald Trump. And the litmus test is denying the results of the 2020 presidential election without any evidence of widespread fraud. Christina Karamo. She is a fearless champion for election integrity. In Colorado, State Representative Ron Hanks, an election denier running for U.S. Senate with an ad featuring footage from the January 6th insurrection, Restore Grassroots Political Parties, was awarded the top slot on the Republican primary ballot from conservatives at the GOP Assembly. Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters, who faces criminal charges for her alleged role in an election security breach, charges she calls politically motivated, is running for Colorado Secretary of State. It's a pleasure to be here to sound the alarm. I'm Tina Peters. And also won Republicans backing for top billing on the GOP ballot. In Arizona, home of the infamous Cyber Ninjas Review, GOP Senate hopeful and sitting Attorney General Mark Burnovich is getting hammered on the airwaves by other Republicans for his role in certifying the state's 2020 election results. Mark Burnovich says President Trump is wrong on voter fraud? Really? In Georgia... Brian Kemp sold us out and allowed radicals to steal the election. David Perdue is going after Governor Brian Kemp for certifying the election in 2020 as the two face off in the GOP gubernatorial primary. Putting up election deniers in November could prove risky for the GOP. The risk is losing. Republican strategist Jason Cable Rowe says even with the challenging environment for Democrats, Republicans still need to strike a broader appeal. Relitigating the 2020 election is popular with Republican voters. It's not popular with non-Republican voters. The idea that we can win without uh, independents and some you know, conservative swing Democrats coming our way is ignoring the reality of Michigan politics. <laughs> Over at the GOP endorsement conventions, appearances from election deniers like Mike Lindell and Rudy Giuliani as Republicans convene for more than 10 hours. After two rounds of voting, District 9. two hand recounts, we know what the problem is. and a ballot snafu that paused voting for an hour, do not resume voting. All voting is paused. And left Republicans grumbling over election integrity, the Trump backed candidates cleaned up. Support the America First ticket. Support your President Donald Trump. With Matt DiPerno securing the party's support for Attorney General after months of trying to revive an unsuccessful election lawsuit and spreading lies about 2020. We proved how corruptible our system is, and we proved how fraud occurred in this state. Now, it's clear that the Republican delegates that met over the weekend were energized by all this misinformation about 2020. But when I tried to ask Christina Caramo and Matt DiPerno how they were going to appeal to a broader base of voters here in Michigan, they refused to answer the questions. Jake. 
Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, what Republicans had to say today at the U.S. border with Mexico as the party looks to sharpen its message against Democrats ahead of the midterm. Stay with us. In our politics lead, nearly a dozen Republican lawmakers led by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy are visiting the U.S.-Mexico border right now as President Biden's decision to end a Trump-era pandemic border restriction faces opposition from both sides of the aisle. And Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is bearing the brunt. McCarthy and more than 50 other House Republicans sent Mayorkas this letter, writing, quote, Your failure to secure the border and enforce the laws passed by Congress raises grave questions about your suitability for office, unquote. Let's get right to CNN's Melanie Zanona, live in Eagle Pass, Texas, for us. And Melanie, moments ago at the press conference on the border, you asked McCarthy about the big story involving McCarthy, the audio revealing that he had, in fact, told House of Republicans that he would recommend that Donald Trump resign after January 6th. That's something that McCarthy brazenly had denied and then proven, that it, proven publicly that he was lying. What, what did McCarthy have to say? Well, I asked him flat out, Jake, why were you not truthful about those private conversations? Remember, he flatly denied that reporting, and then the audios were released. Take a listen to what he had to say. The reporter never asked me that question. The reporter came to me the night before he released the book, and my understanding was he was saying that I asked President Trump to resign. No, I never did, and that's what I was answering. If you're, answering, if you're asking now, did I tell my members that we're going to ask Ask them if I told any of them that I said President Trump. The answer is no. So essentially what McCarthy is trying to say here is that he thought the Times was reporting that he had asked Trump to resign. That is not what the Times reported. They just reported that he told other House Republicans that he planned to ask Trump to step down. And also, it is very important to point out here that McCarthy issued a statement vehemently denying the New York Times reporting, calling it false and wrong after the Times had already published their article. So if he was confused about their reporting, at that point when he was denying it, he should have known what was being reported. It doesn't even make any sense, his denial. As you know, his denial came out after the story. It's... Anyway, yeah. I mean, there's... It's, it's confusing, but I think he's trying to make it confusing. Yeah. Yes, I mean, you can lie, and then you can be good at lying. He's... Not that there's any great thing about being good at lying, but that's just a horrible lie. Anyway, let's get back to the border visit. Uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who's the chair of the House Republican Conference, the number three House Republican, she tweeted this photo of migrants waiting to be processed. They're wrapped in mylar blankets uh, in Eagle Pass, Texas today. Tell me about how Republicans are are using this border trip to to showcase their disapproval of President Biden's policies. Obviously, they want to talk about this a lot ahead of the midterms. Right. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They want to put the spotlight on immigration. This is an area where they feel like they have an upper hand in the midterm elections. And specifically, they use the press conference today to call to attention to President Biden's decision to lift a Trump-era immigration policy known as Title 42. They heard from Border Patrol agents earlier today who warned that lifting that policy could lead to an influx of migrants at the border. And they also used today's press conference to call to attention a tragedy that occurred here in Eagle Pass. A National Guardsman by the name of Evan Bishop was found today. He had died after he went into the river to try to save two migrants that appeared to be drowning. I'm told House Republicans signed a note and presented the Texas National Guard with a flag in his honor.
Yeah, it's a tragic story uh, with that National Guardsman. Melanie Zanona in Eagle Pass, Texas. Thank you so much. Coming up, trapped inside the Shanghai lockdown reaches a new level. The extreme measures happening in Shanghai right now to try to contain COVID cases in one of the world's largest cities. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Breaking this hour, the death sentence of a Texas mother is put on hold just days before her scheduled execution for the death of her two-year-old. The new evidence the lower courts must now review. Is she actually innocent? Plus, caged in, the extremes one city is going to stop the spread of COVID. Now fences are being installed so people cannot leave their homes and Leading this hour, the U.S. Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State visited Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kyiv. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin saying the U.S. needs to weaken Russia's military capability, something that cannot come soon enough for the Ukrainians. And just hours after the Blinken-Austin visit, Russia hit five train stations in western and central Ukraine, targeting innocent civilians again and the rail lines, which have become lifelines in Ukraine. Turning to Ukraine's Donbass region in the southeast, striking new video shows a small village in the Luhansk region after intense fighting. This place was once densely populated. Now it appears totally uninhabitable. Little is left. As CNN's Sam Kindly reports, some frontline volunteers in the Donbass are begging civilians to try to escape while they still have time. (laughs) At 21, Maria Stern is a war veteran. She's been a volunteer on Ukraine's front lines in the Donbass for five years. Today, she's delivering medicine and food to villages within range of Russian artillery. A new phase in Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine is underway. And it's sometimes hard to understand why people stay in frontline villages. I'm asking people a specific question. I am ready to hear children crying and saying, Mom, I'm scared to die. It gives me the creeps to hear them say that myself. Russian forces have captured Izium a few miles to the north. Pounding nearby towns with artillery and rockets, they're slowly advancing south towards Slavyansk and the city of Kramatorsk. Russia's aim is to capture this territory. To do so, it needs to overrun this landscape. Maria is heading towards them, about three miles from the latest reported Russian forces and heavy shelling. She ignores air raid sirens. A family who've become friends are hanging on in their home, and she's bringing them food. On arrival, good news. They've agreed to pull out. A last run in the springtime garden for Evgenia and Alexandra, who ignore the town sirens. My sister woke up this morning and said we had to leave, so we packed up. We didn't want to leave until the last minute, but then something made her want to, so we had to. It's an emotional wrench, but it's a relief. The importance of groups like Maria, part of a volunteer army right across Ukraine, here in the frontline villages, is not just humanitarian, it's political. It's about trying to hold on to as much Ukrainian government territory as is possible for as long as is possible. The lessons from Bucha and other towns captured by Russia is that many civilians may not survive occupation. A neighbour herself, frightened and confused, still refuses to go. She's got a job at the local power plant. 
joining Ukraine's millions of refugees risks a life of deeper poverty. It's simply a genocide of the Ukrainian people. I don't know how else to explain it to you. And you just ask for what? We're not planning to live here. This is my homeland. And my relatives are here. I cannot leave anyone here. My elderly grandmother is 80 and can hardly walk. I can't leave her, do you understand? There's no joy in escape for Grandmother Luga. Not for anyone in this family. Tens of thousands of people are staying on in their homes across this region. In a nearby church, Orthodox Easter services are dominated by prayers for peace. But the unholy ghost of war looms heavily here. Now, Jake, uh, clearly the, uh, both the Russians and the Ukrainians are racing against time because actually the Russian forces are spread almost as thinly as Ukraine's. Now, as uh, Secretary Austin indicated during his visit uh, to Kiev recently, the Americans and others are doing everything they can to rush weaponry through to the Ukrainians to prevent the Russians from closing the jaws on this city, on Kramatorsk, and creating another disaster on the scale that's been in, seen in Mariupol. I have to say also, of course, we've seen substantial Ukrainian uh, reserves uh, and other material moving towards the front lines here. And as I stand here, just off in the distance, I can c continue to hear the steady rumble of artillery, Jake. Sam Kiley reporting live for us from Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. The U.S. State Department has approved a foreign military sale of $165 million worth of ammunition to the government of Ukraine. This on the heels of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to Kiev with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us now live near Ramstein Air Base in Germany. And Oren, this is just the latest round of military aid coming from the U.S. after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said uh, Ukraine can win the war if they have the right help. And part of that help is more than $3 billion in security assistance, weapons and more that the U.S. has already sent to Ukraine. This $165 million is on top of that. And what's worth noting about this is its non-standard ammunition, meaning it's Soviet-era ammunition that will go to the Ukrainian forces for the equipment they already have and know how to use. A lot of the equipment the U.S. is sending in now, for example, the howitzers that have started arriving and will continue to arrive, require some extra training. So that adds to an already difficult and challenging job of getting it into Ukraine, getting Ukrainian forces trained in the middle of a war. But that is a challenge that Ukraine and the U.S. and, and uh, the U.K. and many other allies are now undertaking. Part of that will be the conference here hosted by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at Rammstein Air Base behind me tomorrow. A question uh, with some 20 other nations of who else has equipment, who else can send equipment, and what's the best way to get it in, not only in the short term for the fight right now, but in the medium term and the long term so Ukraine can better defend its sovereignty. Jake? And says American diplomats are headed back into Ukraine as President Zelensky uh, wanted. What, what's that process going to look like? This will be a process that takes time, but it is a process that we expect from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's comments to begin within the coming days here. First, they'll shuttle in and out of Lviv, so essentially working uh, from Poland uh, overnight and then heading into Lviv for the day. Then, as the situation improves, they'll stay more in Lviv, perhaps overnight, and then when the situation allows, they'll begin working in Kiev. But, Jake, all of these require difficult conversations about security because normally embassies have a Marine presence with them. That would mean U.S. troops back in Ukraine. 
Oren Lieberman reporting live for us from near Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Thank you so much. In the besieged city of Mariupol, Ukrainian authorities say Russia continues to refuse to provide safe passage for civilians trapped inside the Azovstal steel plant, one of the last remaining pockets of resistance there. New videos from inside the plant appear to show women and children sheltering in an underground bunker at the site. CNN's Matt Rivers spoke with the wife of one of the soldiers trapped inside the plant, who tells her he will not give up the fight even if it costs him his life. Before Mariupol became a hellscape, before Russian military depravity turned a city into a cemetery, there was love here. Just two weeks before the war began, Natalka Zaritska spent Valentine's Day with her boyfriend in the city. They took this picture at a cafe, and this one after eating. And a few days later, she snapped this one of him from her window seat on the train that would take her back to Kiev. He kissed me and told Natalia, I don't know when I will see you again. Resignation from a man who understood the realities of the war to come. Natalka's boyfriend, who we are not naming or showing for security reasons, is a soldier in the Azov Battalion, a unit that has fought the Russians in Mariupol for months. We went to see Natalka at her home in Kyiv, where she told us her boyfriend was given a command to, quote, fight until the last drop of blood. What did you think when he told you that? Uh, I uh, recommended him uh, to save his life, but he uh, answered, no, um, I uh, should keep on the command. I am a soldier and uh, I have to be uh, here. She says her boyfriend lost cell service on March 3rd. His silence was as deafening as the bombs that by then had started to fall around Kyiv, forcing her and her family down into this cellar. It was in here that after two weeks, she heard from him. When she called, uh, it uh, could be uh, 10 or 15 seconds, and then bombing and uh, no connections. But with what connection he did have, he would send her videos of the utter destruction that surrounded him. We can't show you those for security reasons. What do you think when you watch these videos? Mm, I think they're empty. I feel the empty, absolute empty. Along with the videos were selfies and texts, and on his birthday, a particularly special message. He gave me a proposition uh, that I couldn't... Uh, say no to. S- s- say no, yeah. What did he write to you? Mm. Uh, So, uh, I love you, and uh, do you want to be my wife? A few days later, a marriage certificate made it official. Now a wife, she says she refuses to cry. Her husband is stoic in the face of death, so she will be too. How else to describe her reaction to the last message she sent? My husband told me that, Natalia, please be glad, because very soon it will finish. When you say it, it's going to finish very soon, what are the two options? Very simple. Uh, they will alive or they uh, will be killed. Just two options. And Jake, uh, in her, in his, this soldier's last message to his wife a few days ago, she hasn't heard from him since then, but in that last message, he took several pictures of a handwritten letter that he wrote. He said that this would be his, quote, final letter. He said, 
to her, don't read this letter until after you know that I'm gone. She told me she's still holding out hope that maybe he can get out of that steel plant complex alive if there's some sort of evacuation possible. He's, she said in her heart, she hopes it's possible. In her head, she thinks that it might be impossible. Jake. Matt Rivers in Kiev, thank you so much. Where do people living in Ukraine go if they're not able to use most refugee shelters? CNN visits a special shelter in Poland. Then the supply chain problems now affecting a vital source for new moms. That's ahead. Topping our world lead, more than 5.2 million refugees have now fled Ukraine since the start of Russia's unprovoked invasion. As we have reported, many of these people have been taken in by neighboring countries. But as CNN's Erica Hill reports for us now, some refugees say they've had a harder time finding help. After fleeing the war in Ukraine, a chance to just be a kid. They are trouble what they feel. She says here she's grateful. Poland has welcomed nearly 3 million people since the war started. Yet not everyone is greeted with open arms. It's um, clear that we are more open for, uh, you know, those Slavic um, people, ethnic groups. While Ukrainians arriving in Poland can stay for 18 months, work legally and have access to health care and social services, non-Ukrainians can't. These three women knew they could help. They have only... Two weeks to think about the next steps, and uh, I can't imagine actually how to how to do it when you are a war refugee. Overnight, they started a shelter for non-Ukrainian refugees run by Kik, a Catholic NGO in Poland. With space for 70 guests, they're turning people away daily. And from the beginning, we it's it's full. Joel and Daniel, students from Nigeria, were studying management in Kiev when the war broke out and were reluctant to leave. It was fun for me, and I would rather love to go back to Ukraine. It was like, it's a very good country. You told me um, when you were looking to leave that it was harder for you because of the way you look, because of the color of your skin. Yeah, to be honest, yes, it's a challenge. They finally left two weeks ago and are now trying to figure out what's next. We also try to support our guests in organizing their next steps. So sometimes it's it's a trip to other countries, but also we we try to find uh, flats or apartments, places to stay. Volunteers, at least a dozen a day, keep the shelter running and help connect refugees to essential services. Among them, 27-year-old Khaled, an IT professional who fled Afghanistan seven months ago. I do anything that I can do. It's very good for me because I don't have any other job and it's a better idea to spend time here. This effort relies on donations from clothing and toiletries to food and flowers. Even the space, which has now welcomed more than 500 people from 36 countries, is donated. A generous offer that runs out at the end of May. How long do you think your help will be needed. We should be ready to uh, invite new refugees uh, till the end of the next year. And they're dedicated to meeting that challenge. I have a feeling that we are really helping those people who are here. We cannot, you know, solve our problems, but uh, this is a small part that we can do. So in terms of that small part, Jake, they are determined to keep it going to provide this safe space. Now, initially, they thought they would just limit their guests to three nights because they knew how big the need would be. But they said 
they can't just kick them out after three nights. So some people have stayed far longer. Again, they have families there, single men, a number of students. In fact, they said they were surprised to learn just how many international students are studying in Ukraine, something that, of course, became quickly apparent as people began to flee the war. Mm. Erica Hill reporting live from Warsaw, Poland. Thank you so much. Fenced in, China is turning residents into prisoners in their own homes in one city in order to stop the spread of COVID, they say. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead and a show of solidarity from the United States. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin traveled to the Ukrainian capital of Kiev to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky and other key Ukrainian leaders. After that meeting, Blinken declaring that Ukraine will be around, quote, a lot longer than Vladimir Putin, unquote. Joining us live to discuss Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who serves as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. So Secretary of State Blinken is going to testify before your committee tomorrow. What immediate questions do you have for him following his trip to Ukraine? Well, uh, Jake, good to be with you. I, I want to hear uh, what he heard from President Zelensky. Uh, I want to hear specifically uh, what is the type of assistance uh, that President Zelensky is looking for, uh, what is our ability to provide that, what is the success of the overwhelming uh, uh, lethal equipment that we provided uh, the Ukrainians and uh, how are they using that. Uh, so I want to get a clear uh, picture uh, from the State Department about uh, what has happened in terms of that which we provided, what is the plan for that which we will provide so that the Ukrainians can continue to successfully fight for their country uh, and defeat uh, the Russians at the end of the day. So while tomorrow's hearing is, is, is a bigger hearing, it's about the budget, but obviously uh, this is the issue of the moment, and I'm sure there'll be many questions along those lines. A senior State Department official tells CNN that Secretary Blinken uh, said that American diplomats are going to start to return to Kyiv uh, this week, I believe, Kyiv, definitely Ukraine. Are you concerned about their safety? I'm always concerned about our diplomats abroad and their safety anywhere in the world. This is obviously a country that is at war, uh, but we have had diplomats in countries at war before. So I'm sure that the secretary uh, has been working through diplomatic security to make sure that to the effect that diplomats are returning, they are returning in a way that they can be helpful in our bilateral relationships with Ukraine, be a source of direct communications uh, with the Zelensky government, but do it in a way in which they're safe and secure. I'm also uh, very glad to hear that the administration has named uh, someone to be uh, a career person, the ambassador to Ukraine. I look forward to reviewing her file and having her before the committee as soon as possible. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says America wants to see Russia, quote, weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Ukraine, unquote. Um, What will it take to weaken Russia that much? Well, I think uh, to, as I understood the Secretary Austin's statement, it's basically about saying not giving, not having Russia have the wherewithal to 
continue to attack Ukraine in the way that it's had, and not to bring that belligerence to another country. You've seen some of the suggestions by some of the Russian uh, 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 high establishment in terms of the military about talking about Transnistria and other targets to come. And so it's a combination of really continuing to inflict enormous pain on the Russian military, which the Ukrainians have courageously done with the use of our weaponry. And secondly, to continue to tighten the economic noose around Putin's neck and to create uh, unrest in Russia because of the economic consequences that the Russian people are facing as a result of Putin's decision to uh, unjustly uh, invade Ukraine and violate uh, the international order. That has to be a continuum. Every day we are looking at different ways in which we can create those economic pressures on Russia and on Putin, but at the same time create enormous consequences. You know, and I think Russian mothers are beginning to ask, where's my son? And that will continue to be a real problem uh, for Vladimir Putin. You, you talk about economic pressure. Last year, the European Union paid Russia almost $300 million every single day uh, for energy, oil, gold, natural gas. Ukrainian officials, when I was in Ukraine a couple weeks ago, they, they told me this is unacceptable, uh, that Germany and other European countries need to stop their funding Putin's war, even if they take an economic hit, the, these European countries, they need to do this. Do you agree? Does the U.S. need to take more of a leadership role in helping Germany and other European countries to end their energy dependence on Russia as soon as possible? Well, certainly ending the uh, energy dependence on Russia for not just Germany, but Europe is one of the most important things we can do. And we have been engaged. We've been engaged uh, with the Qataris and others to provide liquefied natural gas to Germany and other countries. We are looking at other sources of energy uh, to help uh, diversify the European uh, uh, dependency that they've had on Russia. But let's be very honest. You just can't turn the switch overnight. If it could be done, and if there were other sources that could replace it, it's not just an economic hit. It's what that energy supplies to the people in those countries, to the businesses in those countries, to the economy of those countries that are helping to fuel the supplies necessary for Ukraine uh, to fight against Russia. So, yes, we want to see it end yesterday. But by the same token, we have to deal with the realities of how do we create the alternatives. And what I hope and what I know will happen, this is why Putin has made one of the most strategic blunders of his life, is that Europe wants to diversify away from Russia. Uh, before, they were happy and content to have Russia as their gas station. That's not the case anymore. And that's going to have long-term consequences for Russia. The quicker we can do it and the quicker we can help Europe be able to do it, uh, it's going to take some difficult choices. Do we want to turn to some of our Gulf partners, which we have some strained relationships with, and say, you know, crank up the output? Uh, they'll probably do that, but they'll probably uh, have things that they are concerned about in return. That's one of the policy decisions that's going to have to be made. All right. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Menendez of New Jersey, thank you so much, sir. Good to see you. A shortage of baby formula leaving some new parents desperate. Who's to blame? What's being done to fix this? That's next. 
In our health lead, you're watching government officials in Shanghai caging people into their homes to prevent them from leaving. Leaders in the city of 25 million people refusing to ease up on draconian COVID containment measures, even as residents shout from their balconies for basic necessities such as food and medical care. There are the fences right there. CNN's David Culver is in lockdown in Shanghai. And David, China's censorship efforts have gone into overdrive. They've even censored their own national anthem. This is remarkable. The first line in particular, Jake, of the national anthem, the words rise those who don't want to be enslaved, initially directed towards foreign oppressors. But on social media, folks here who are suffering amidst this lockdown started using it against their own government. So those lines now censored. What was really shocking to witness, though, over the weekend, Jake, was this rare digital uprising on social media. It involved a six-minute video called Voices of April. I think we can show you some of it as well. The clip uses grayed-out drone footage of Shanghai and includes voices of people's desperation in this city over the past several weeks. It highlights a shared misery and and helplessness. The video points to dysfunction, mismanagement, what many here see as a city in chaos. And it resonated with so many this weekend who really just feel trapped So they, in turn, went to China's heavily controlled Internet to vent. They shared the video so quickly and cleverly, Jake, that China's censors struggled to keep up. So no sooner would they block one version did another resurface, rapidly multiplying and just flooding China's cyberspace. And we're seeing a video of of older residents in Shanghai in wheelchairs and government quarantine facilities. Is the Chinese government policy really to take every single person who tests positive to one of these places? Well, that is certainly the direction coming from the very top. And and one of China's vice premiers is actually here in Shanghai directing the response to this outbreak. She's obviously here to enforce President Xi Jinping's zero COVID strategy. And you see videos of folks inside the quarantine facilities. It's heartbreaking. Some of the conditions are just terrible. And many elderly folks were sent there as well. We're hearing stories of people in in their 90s in wheelchairs taken from their homes to these facilities, really given just a a thin mattress and blanket to make do. And Jake, it's not only positive cases who are required to be isolated, but also close contact. So in some situations, Jake, you've got entire nursing homes that have been sent there. All right, David Culver in Shanghai for us. Thank you so much. Turning to the pandemic here in the United States, hospitalizations are up 9% compared to last week in the U.S. It's a concerning sign pointing to the strength of the new Omicron subvariant. Thankfully, deaths remain low. They're about a third of what they were a month ago. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now. Elizabeth, yesterday, the White House said that the Biden administration would have had a different reaction to this uptick, uptick a year ago. But do you think individuals should still take the same precautions they would have a year ago during a surge? Jake, I think so much of this is now up to the individual with fewer rules. You have to say, look, what do I want to do? Do I want to wear a mask when I want when I go to the supermarket? Do I want to wear a mask on an airplane? Dr. Jaw's point is, look, a year ago, we didn't have as many vaccinated and boosted people. A year ago, we didn't have the therapeutics that we have. But still, take a look at these numbers. We still have about 373 new deaths per day. That's a 14% drop from last week. It's about a third of what they were a month ago, but still it was lower in July of last year, 227 deaths per day. So we, we have not gotten back to that low that we were at at the summer of last year. So again, it really does come down to individual choice at this point. If you feel safer wearing a mask, 
you should. It goes without saying, of course, that you should be fully vaccinated and boosted. Elizabeth, the pandemic's had this domino effect on the global economy, including supply chain issues with vital products such as baby formula. Now, adding to the shortage of baby formula, certain formulas have been recalled. What is the FDA saying about this and what's being done about it? So these formulas were made by Abbott Nutrition, and the FDA says, look, our inspection showed that Abbott did not take steps to prevent contamination during manufacturing. I will tell you, Jake, having covered countless recalls, it is highly unusual for the FDA to come out and just flat out say that a company did something like that or, you know, that they didn't take certain steps that they should have. Uh, That's very unusual for the FDA to be that critical of a company. Let's take a look at what we have, what has happened so far. So what's happened so far is that Similac, Alimentum, and Elicare formulas are involved in this recall, and that's because four infants have had chronobacter infections. Two of those infants died. The other two infants were hospitalized. Abbott Labs says that they are continuing to take corrective actions and that they um, have already done some actions and they will continue to do more. Jake? All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. The thousands of text messages Donald Trump's then chief of staff received about January 6th, everything, everyone from Trump's kids to members of Congress, the CNN exclusive, that's next. We have some uh, breaking news in our politics lead. Just moments ago, a federal judge temporarily blocked the Biden administration from ending a Trump-era pandemic restriction uh, on the U.S.-Mexico border. It's known as as, uh, Title 42. It currently allows border authorities to turn migrants back back to Mexico or their home countries because of the public health uh, crisis. The Biden administration planned to end the restrictions on May 23rd. That's a move that drew bipartisan criticism. Also in our politics lead, newly obtained text messages by then-Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows shedding new light on what members of Congress were saying and thinking on January 6th and the days after, including staunch Trump supporter Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who texted Mark Meadows about a week after the insurrection, saying, quote, in our private chat with only members of Congress, several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to call for martial, misspelled, martial law, I don't know on these things. I just wanted you to tell him, the president, they stole this election. We all know they will destroy our country next. Please tell him to declassify as much as possible so we can go after Biden and anyone else. So that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene said. But let me, Alyssa, (laughs) let me start with you. This is what she said in a text message. But just last week on Friday, she was asked in court... Uh, when she's being, there's this effort to get her off the ballot because uh, of this legal theory that because she participated in an insurrection, she shouldn't be able to to run for office according to, um, you know, Civil War era legislation. Anyway, um, she was asked if she'd ever advocated for martial law. Uh, This is what she had to say. Uh, Ms. Green, did you advocate to President Trump to impose martial law as a way to remain in power? I don't recall. So you're not denying you did it. You just don't remember. I don't remember. So I guess generally speaking, that's what people say when they did it, but they don't want to admit it. Right. You you would think you would recall something as significant as calling for martial law. But the thing that's notable about the Marjorie Taylor Greene text is January 17th. This is two weeks after the insurrection, days before the swearing in of President Biden. And keep in mind, Secretary Esper is out of DOD. It's now Trump's hand-picked defense secretary. 
And Chairman Milley, if he had been asked, um, we're invoking martial law, you would have had a full-blown constitutional crisis. The Department of Defense probably would have had every general officer walk out because they would not do this. I don't think we fully appreciate how crazy some of the theories being espoused in those final weeks were. I, yeah. I, I totally agree. I, that's what I was most struck by. This is 11 days after January 6th, a violent insurrection in which five people died, more than 100 Capitol Police officers were injured, and police officers generally are injured. And three days before Joe Biden is going to be president, this wasn't, not that it's forgivable, Jake, right? right? Not that, oh, well, it was December 20th, so it's fine. But I do think it speaks to how deep they had gone down this hole so close to Joe Biden being sworn in. You know, if we all... We all prior to this, I think, you know, the peaceful transition of power. At the end of the day, we have that. We had that with Bush Gore. We have that always. We almost didn't have We didn't that. have it. And well, we, we didn't. Right. We didn't in any meaningful way. You're exactly right. We, it, it could have been significantly worse. Because to Alyssa's point, it's not that far. We weren't that far away. Three days away. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene and other members of Congress sending it to the White House chief of staff. This is not just like a conversation on conservative talk radio. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is serious stuff. Um, And and second, there were several Republicans in Trump's orbit pleading for Trump to act while the insurrection was happening. Mick Mulvaney, the former former uh, acting chief of staffs, Mark Suckner, Mark Meadows, the the acting the, the chief of staff then. Mark, he needs to stop this now. Can I do anything to help? Republican Congressman William Timmons. The president needs to stop this ASAP. Reince Priebus, the former chief of staff and RNC chair. Tell them, all caps, tell them to go home. Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., uh, to Meadows. He's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Meadows responds, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. Trump Jr. writes back, this is one you go to the mattresses on. They will try to F his entire legacy on this if it gets worse. And yet... Quite a, quite a number of those individuals still lying about the election, still lying about the insurrection. And one of the notable messages to me in the moment of the insurrection that you didn't read was from a congressman who told Mark Meadows, this does not help our cause. So you really, it was, and it's also stunning to see, too, and, and, the, and the Meadows text kind of laid this out, how quickly these Republican members and these Republican officials turned from, you know, panic and concern and, and urging the president to call this off to so quickly say, well, maybe we can explain that this was Antifa. Like, I think that yep. Antifa was involved here, or there were other explanations. I mean, you saw this with Kevin McCarthy, too, who said last, who keeps kind of hanging on to his claim that it was actually Democrats who were responsible for the insurrection, when we know from what McCarthy said at the time that he held Trump, uh, he, he said Trump bared some responsibility. So these text messages are very illuminating in that count, and you see why the January 6th committee wanted to talk to Mark Meadows so badly for their investigation. Yeah, although he stopped cooperating with the committee after he turned over those texts. But I have to say, these texts are very helpful to the committee. Yeah, they're very helpful, and they're very, they give us a lot of information about the fact of what people were thinking in real time, which is very contrary to what they, they said in public, which just reiterates the point that, that the, the GOP is not leading. They're following. What they do is they have their feelings about things, and then they find out, oh, the MAGA people want us to do something different, so we'll do that, and we'll pretend like we never thought anything else. But I think the more important thing here for me is the fact that they obviously recognize that Donald Trump had the ability to stop this. Yeah. And that's the dereliction of duty. And so there's just there's no other way to read these texts than them clearly clearly saying there's one person who can stop this right now and it's Donald Trump 
And Donald Trump never did that. And, and uh, Alyssa, take a look at this, because David Perdue, former senator, formerly respected CEO, uh, is now challenging the incumbent Republican governor, Brian Kemp, in Georgia. Georgia, one of these places where Donald Trump falsely claimed a whole bunch of fraud that did not exist, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in fact, Jared Kushner in these texts sends forwards a story showing how like one of these allegations, conspiracy theories was just nonsense. Anyway, here's David Perdue in a debate. Let me be very clear tonight. The election in 2020 was rigged and stolen. Rising gas prices, unbelievable inflation, the brink of war. All that started right here in Georgia when our governor caved and allowed radical Democrats to steal our election. Does he believe that? I don't think so. I've spent a decent amount of time with David Perdue. He knows better. People around him do. And by the way, he, he lost that race because he echoed election fraud claims. I was, I was advising the Georgia Senate runoffs. People weren't turning out because everyone was saying, hey, your vote doesn't count. It's all rigged. So the, it's just the fact that was his opening statement, by the way. This wasn't like a one-off point in the debate. He is running on it was stolen and Governor Kemp should not be governor for upholding the Democratic election. And, and uh, I, I want to bring you in because you pointed something out to me that I had completely forgotten. So Jamie Gangel and I in, in December reported mm-hmm. uh, that there was this text that the committee thought Rick Perry wrote, uh, basically pushing this crazy theory right. about not recognizing electors. And uh, we reached out to it was traced to Rick Perry's phone. We reached out to his office. His spokesman denied it. And then today in these trove of texts, not only was it traced to Rick Perry's phone, as you reported, he signed the text, Rick Perry. <laughs> so either someone got his phone, yeah. and yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, yeah. it, it, strange credulity to think that this is not, it was right then, it's right now. The idea that you would lie about this, like we've seen with Kevin McCarthy too, you know, just, just bald-faced lying is now okay, I guess. Yeah, McCarthy lying again today about uh, about his denial of that story. Right, right. And it's constant. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, it's not a crime to lie to the press. But I think politicians should remember, everyone should remember that when you're lying to the press, you're lying to the public. All right. Thanks, one and all. A last-minute reprieve for a Texas mother facing execution for the death of her toddler. That's next. Breaking news, the execution of a Texas mom on death row is now on hold. The Texas trial court has been ordered to review new evidence in the case of 52-year-old Melissa Lucio. She was convicted of murdering her two-year-old daughter in 2007, as CNN's Natasha Chen reports. We're just so excited and, and um, we're, we're, we're waiting. We're, we're waiting for, for Melissa to come home. <laughs> With just two days before the scheduled execution of Melissa Lucio, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals issued a stay that might give her a chance to prove that she did not kill her two-year-old daughter, Mariah Alvarez, in 2007. In a statement, Lucio said in part, I am grateful the court has given me the chance to live and prove my innocence. Mariah is in my heart today and always. It's a really tough time for all of us right now. Bobby Alvarez and his siblings have been visiting their mother in a central Texas prison where she has been on death row. She fell all the way down. When I first step up there, I'll be down here. Her family says that day they were in the middle of moving. When Lucia was packing in their second floor unit, Mariah, who was unsteady on her feet due to a mild physical disability, fell down the stairs. She didn't show signs of severe injury, but became lethargic and two days later, unresponsive. We immediately called the, you know, the ambulance and from there, you know, got taken away. 
It just was just overnight. Court documents show Texas Rangers interrogated Lucio for hours about extensive bruising and suspected child abuse. The clip of this interview was provided by Lucio's lawyers. How are you not cold-blooded? How are you going to change our minds and prove to us that you're not a cold-blooded kid? I don't know how to change the minds. Well, you can tell us, start by telling us the truth. Start by telling us the truth. It wasn't going to stop until she told the interrogators what they wanted to hear. Lucio's lawyers say after hours of questioning the night her daughter died, Lucio was pressured into agreeing that she was responsible for her daughter's injuries, but never said she killed her child. Her defense team says the new evidence includes testimony the jury never heard from witnesses saying Lucio did not abuse her child. Lucio's lawyers also say the jury was not shown how Mariah's bruising could have been explained by a blood coagulation disorder caused by head trauma sustained in the fall. Now a lower court must review some of these claims, including that she is actually innocent. Five jurors have said with new evidence they feel Lucio should have a new trial. Mariah's death was a tragedy, not a murder. And the reason that we're seeing the jurors come forward, the reason that we're seeing such an outpouring of bipartisan support is because people recognize that Melissa Lucio is innocent. Now the trial court will have a hearing to review evidence on certain defense claims. And based on that, she could get a new trial. All of that could take months, and she will remain behind bars in the meantime. Jake. All right, Natasha Chen, thanks so much. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He is right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.